welcome to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 5, Body Wisdom. going to talk about the wisdom in the body. Wisdom is total information, any point of which thoroughly defined would define all the others. Anything less than that may be knowledge, but it is not wisdom. There are two ways of looking at the search for knowledge. One is, we might call it the empirical way, in which a man goes outside his own consciousness and he looks at objects around him in the world and he proceeds to examine them, cut them up, shock them, poison them, and so on, and derives what he calls knowledge of the examined structure. This is the empirical scientist's approach. That is one way. In that process, the person doing the operation always feels very much cleverer than the object being examined. So if you get a frog and take its skull top off and then take the brain out and take it to pieces, you always feel terribly much more clever than the frog. That's one way. The empirical method whereby feeling very clever one proceeds to take things to bits that are outside oneself and feels very clever in devising methods of taking them to bits. No doubt there is a large amount of cleverness in taking things to bits, especially if you take them to bits with fine knives instead of with hammers. You know, one way of finding out what a person is is to get that person and crush them with a hammer and then sort out the chemistry, and decide that that is a human being. Another way, an ancient Chinese way, is to get a sharp knife, and then feel for the way the thing is made, and only cut where it is possible to cut into tissue that is not too hard. So you don't saw through bones for a cross-section. You just go into the joints, and you cut into the soft tissues that hold them together, and then they fall apart. That way you have some knowledge of the way the structure is held together in an articulated way. But there is another way of getting knowledge, which is the exact opposite of that, in which instead of feeling clever in taking the thing to pieces, you actually feel that whatever you discovered about that thing was already in the thing. Think of the difference. In one case you attack it from outside and you think that every discovery you make is a proof that you are clever. Empirical scientific approach. The other way is to think that if you find anything in anything, mysteriously the thing you found was already in there. That's quite different. Because then if you examine the brain of a frog, what astonishes you is not your own cleverness, but the cleverness of the intelligence that made the brain of the frog. <coughs> These two ways are exactly opposite. One of them has been used 
especially okay. since the Renaissance and uh, Francis Hogg, as a method of lifting the stock of human self-imagery. But the other way is very, very ancient indeed, and it consists of being in perpetual astonishment before the wonders inside nature. Now, the first way doesn't really reveal to you the innermost soul of the being you are examining. But the second way does. If you look into the eye of your partner, you will find something there, and it is already there waiting to be looked at. So, instead of thinking it would be quite clever to get a knife and take it to pieces, think, as you look at it, the structure that I see in it already is a product of the forces that produce this structure. So, if we actually see a structure that is functioning, as in a plant or an animal, what we do is say that the forces that produce that plant, that animal, must have been such forces that produce that plant or animal. So if there is a joint in the animal, say a hip joint, and by means of that joint a leg is articulated and the animal is able to go along in a certain way, what you see there is that the energy that made the animal must somehow have devised this joint. If we get this approach thoroughly clear in our mind that it is exactly the opposite to external empirical scientific methods of examination, we begin to grow in a different way. You look at your hand and you can see that you could saw the fingers off quite easily with a saw and think you were very clever for inventing the saw. Suppose you look at your hand and then move a finger and feel what is happening when you do it. And you feel articulation, the jointedness, and you feel that because it is jointed in this way, you can do certain things with it. And then you think, how did this hand come into being? Not, what can I do with this hand to reduce it to an inorganic state, break it down and test its chemistry? What is the peculiar property of the energy that produced this hand. Now you've all got a couple of these. I've got one and a half, most of you have got two. In this hand you see intelligence. You see that it has grown itself in such a way that it can indicate, it can wave to people, it can punch noses, it has a whole series of functions each one of which is a product of the energy that evolved into the hand. <coughs> William Blake believed that energy, if anything, was God, energy was God. We can talk philosophically about power, about omnipotence. We can talk about the almightiness of God, and we are still talking about energy in a slightly more generalized way. When we use the word energy, we're talking about something that works. The erg in energy means work. In work affirming is the meaning of the word energy. That 
which affirms the work, the function in a being, is energy. Then we have to ask ourselves, by what peculiar arrangement of itself does this energy produce highly organized forms, structures, which are able to do extraordinarily complicated activities? By what peculiar process does a place swimming along change its apparent color into sand color in one place, pebble color in another place? By what peculiar manipulations of its own energy does a chameleon change color? By what peculiar process in the mind of a man does geometry arise, mathematics, logic, what is intuition, what is the meaning of the word spirit, what is the meaning of the word matter. All these terms refer to functions of the energy already manifest, showing itself in the organism. So we're talking about the wisdom in the body. And we said that wisdom is not serially presented ideas, but the totality of all ideas, such that the definition of any one of them presupposes all the others. <coughs> Let's think about that very carefully. Whatever we examine, we are going to say, what does it do? Whatever it is, what does it do? When we're talking about doing, we're talking about function. We're talking about the way energy moves, the pattern way energy moves. Now, in our own case, we have a firm belief that we can actually move ourselves. There are pretended philosophers who don't believe we can do this. I open my hand, I tell you, I warn you, I'm going to close it. Now I have closed it. When you do that with your own hand, open it and then close it. Do you feel that when you open it, you are opening it and that you're not being tricked by someone who's opening it? That you are opening it. You are able to scratch your own nose. Can you do it? Have you been provoked to do it because I said it? Or are you able to inhibit it? Some inhibited it. Some say, I'm not going to be a fool. I won't scratch my nose. Except later. There is a process going on inside the human organism which is felt immediately by the human being to be freedom. That is to say, it is free to produce a change and dome because there is a form there already. Observe that word freedom, free and dome. The free means unimpeded motion. The dome means impedance. So that when you have freedom, what you have is an impedance which somehow does not constrain your motion absolutely. <coughs> Earlier today we were talking about the freedom of a man when he falls off a cliff to change his mind in midair, put an arm out here, a leg out there, and rotate his body so that he lands on his feet instead of his head. 
whilst you are under the influence of gravity, you are nevertheless free to fall and break your neck or break your legs first. Now the peculiar nature of the freedom of man is this, that in the midst of bondage, he is able to choose the way to which he shall expose himself in this bondage situation. He is bound, he's under gravitational forces, he's under electric forces, electromagnetic forces, magnetic forces, chemical forces. He's right in the middle of a lot of forces which science will solemnly tell you are all bound forces, all law conformable, and yet mysteriously the human being is absolutely convinced that he can choose between these different laws. Just as surely as there can be poison in a bottle and you can decide to drink it or not drink it. But if you drink it, you will be poisoned. But you don't have to. Just as surely as you can stand on the edge of a cliff and decide to jump or not jump. But if you jump, you go under the influence of gravity and fall. And yet you don't have to jump. And this immediate sense that you have beyond argument beyond any argument that any empirical scientist can offer you, is that you feel this capacity for choice. When an empirical scientist does a laboratory experiment, he does so without asking himself whether he is free to do it. <coughs> Supposing a man believes, like a mechanistic behaviorist believes, that he is not free, and that all his activities are conditioned by stimuli, when he finds himself in the laboratory with the dog strapped up and some electrical apparatus to tickle it with, he doesn't ask himself whether he's free to do it, he keeps his mind off that. Because if he begins to consider that, he may not do precisely this experiment. He is out to prove certain propositions, to prove that all action in the universe including biological action, is conditioned. And yet in the very act of doing this experiment, he has chosen a particular experiment to do rather than another one. So there is our first point. We have inside us an immediate awareness that we choose. No amount of argument by empirical scientists or skeptics who can doubt their own freedom can possibly invalidate the fact that in the very moment of doubting the statement there is freedom the person making the statement I doubt it is choosing to make that statement because if you ask him why are you saying that he doesn't say because I'm a bundle of conditioned reflexes he starts arguing from certain rational principles saying well because there is gravity, there is chemical law, there is mechanical law, and he gives you a whole series of laws which he has discovered in nature, which are really inertias, which he found in nature. And on the basis of these laws, he then says, therefore, there is no freedom. And this, therefore, does not follow. So we're now going to examine the human being, and we're going to be surprised and if we were talking to little babies, if there are any babies in the audience, I'm very, very glad, because they will comprehend it immediately. If we say, let us examine the body, 
And instead of feeling clever at what we discover, feel astonished at what we discover. Supposing I put my hand towards you like that, so the palm is facing you, and tell you that there are two bones in my forearm which are now parallel. But if I turn my hand over like that, those bones have now crossed, so they make a sort of slim X. And I ask myself, what is the purpose of that? Why have I got these bones? Why have I got any bones at all? This peculiar energy which has made this organism has made it so that it functions in certain ways. My arm will bend this way and it won't bend backwards. And that is not an accident. It's simply because the energy in my body is more interested in dragging things towards me than it is in giving them away. The to me muscles in the body are stronger than the to you muscles. Taking muscles are stronger than giving muscles. Now, we are talking about the energy in the body and that proper definition of any part will define all the other parts. We talk about man, mankind. Man is from a word meaning to evaluate. And we talk about manual, manipulations, and we refer to manus, the hand. If we define the hand exactly, we will define man also. Man means an evaluator, and one of the instruments of his evaluation is the hand, that whereby he counts. Ladies count on their fingers, don't they, ordinarily. Some of them, some geniuses correctly count with invisible fingers, so that everybody thinks they're counting in another way. They count on imaginary fingers. Some can actually do algebra. But behind everything, we begin by counting on our fingers. When we run out of fingers, we count on toes. So a very, very primitive count would be 10 and then 20. Count everything we've got that's separable. And there is the basis of our count. We are looking at energy that has already done something. It has grown in this way in order to function in this way so that when we look at it, we are looking at an energy that fulfills functions by the way it organizes itself. Now, if a thing fulfills a function from within itself, we call it intelligence. The tail in intelligence means purpose. Telos is purpose. Intelligence means the essence which binds a purpose in itself. So if we say an energy produces from inside itself a function which fulfills a purpose, we are required to define this energy as intelligent. <coughs> if instead of saying energy, which means affirming work into something, we generalize it more and more and finish up with the idea of power, meaning that pushing mysterious X that makes the globe rotate, that carries it around the sun, that makes shoots come out of the ground in the spring. There is a pusher in nature, and this pusher we call power. This power, when it is involved in work, we call energy. When it is applied in a particular situation to a particular object, 
we call it a force. The FO in force and the PO in power actually have the same origin. So when we say that which has within itself the capacity to function towards the fulfillment of a purpose is intelligent, and everywhere in living organisms we find fulfillment of purpose is there, which maintains the life of a being, we have to say this energy, this power, is intelligent. Now wisdom is concerned with the totality of all the forms and their mutual implications, so we have to say, as all functions everywhere are the behaviours of energy, and we will use this word power, this pushing X, this mysterious something that pushes everything around in the universe, we have to say that there is an infinite intelligent power. It is intelligent because it fulfills a function. Then we can ask ourselves a question which a lot of scientific minds would say, don't ask that question because you have no ground to believe it. Is a man intelligent? Yes, because he works towards the realization of a purpose. Is the earth intelligent? Well, of course not. The earth is not intelligent. But the earth is the precondition of organic life on the earth, and that organic life is purposeful. Now, if the purpose in the plant, the animal and man spring out of the earth, and realizing themselves on the earth, standing upon the earth with the earth as their basis, with all their chemistry derived from the earth, which is a mass in the solar system, one time not solid, but diffused throughout the solar system itself, are we not compelled logically to say that the power which produced the man on the earth is an intelligent power? If so, then the solar nebula from which this planetary system derived was an intelligent power. We can then talk about solar intelligence. We can talk about the whole solar system as an intelligent being. And we can think about that plasma, that very, very fine energy, which at one time was an incandescent mass, shaped roughly like the solar system is now. But the planets not yet cooled, but the matter of the planets, remember matter is energy, the energy of those planets not yet cooled, still a part, obviously, in dynamic interrelation with the whole field of solar energy. And it is moving towards producing intelligent beings, one of which is man. It is therefore an intelligent power, a solar power, producing man on earth. You can then see how in the ancient world those priest-king scientists who understood that fact quite clearly said that they were sons of the sun. They actually called themselves solar beings. And anybody who didn't know that fact, then they would say they are sons of the moon. Where the moon, as you know, hasn't got any organic life on it, doesn't grow any plants or animals or men, and therefore symbolizes the type of energy locked up, not yet producing that it will produce in the future 
If you live long enough, you will see. You've already seen the first steps to occupying it. You can't conceive that men are not going to do something with it, <coughs> use it, grow things on it, establish on it a life pattern and so on. But at the moment, it is inert. And it is phasic, it is periodic, and it is peculiarly related to moods of the sea on earth. So it was used as a symbol of a kind of life that as near as you can get to it is mechanical, considering that all energy is intelligent at base. There we see in the moon a sort of term of involution where the free intelligent power, the solar power, has brought itself down, progressively condensing itself, until it has immobilized itself to the greatest degree. And the moon symbolizes, therefore, that approximation to total immobility, as near as we can get to it. What we have then is a kind of large atom going round in an orbit and presenting the same face to the Earth continually, cannot develop itself in the way that it might develop if it had been a bit farther away, had rotated on its axis, had its own night and day, had an atmosphere. <coughs> if it had had those things, it might have already grown some plants, some animals, and so on. But it hasn't yet. It's one-sixth the mass of the Earth, and its atmosphere, such as it was, was robbed from it because of its too close proximity to the Earth. But there we see two ways now of thinking. One is a way where we look externally at the thing and be pleased we can take it to pieces. The other is one in which we look at it and we identify with it and we say that all the brilliant arrangements and articulations and organizations within these things are there for us to look at. We didn't put them there, they're there. We discover them there because they're there. And they are put there by an intelligent, involving power, and its greatest depth of involution is represented by the moon, with no organic life on it that we can see. Now, the way of the moon is the way of routine, is the way of phasic changes conditioned by a law of the rotation of that body around the earth. So that the way of the moon in yoga, that is Pitriyana, the way of the ancestors, and the way of the sun were two exactly opposite ways. The way of the sun is the way of the affirmation of freedom, Surya, the sun. Affirming free, yana away. Surya is a way of affirming freedom. The other way is to be in a routine way of behavior and to believe that you cannot get out of that routine. A mechanistic behaviorist will solemnly assure you that you cannot do anything unless you are stimulated and you cannot do anything except react to the kind of stimulus that you get in accordance with the organism which is already a product, according to them, of blind forces of evolution.
if you believe that you are conditioned in that way, your own belief will condition you. You will actually behave as if you are enslaved by natural laws, by gravity, by laws of electromagnetic distribution, by laws of chemistry and so on. If you believe it, the idea that you are enslaved will enslave you. And you are then on the way of the moon. You are on the way of the ancestors. The equation of the moon and the ancestors was quite simple. They said ancestors, fathers and mothers, generally wish children to obey them. But if the children obey their earthly ancestors, and their earthly ancestors have adjusted to a certain kind of way of living, we say have learned, and because they have learned it, they think it's the way. If the parents impose on the children, and the children behave in the same way as the parents, then there will be an exact repetition from generation to generation of a behavior which in effect would mean mechanism. So that way of the moon, of that non-growing thing, which repeatedly goes through certain phases, increasing and decreasing, that way was also called the way of their ancestors, the pitiless or fathers. Think of that very carefully now, because when we look inside the human being, we see certain things, and they are there already for us to see. Let's look at our body. Throughout the whole of our body, we see that we have a stuff called, loosely, flesh. A biologist would call it protoplasm, the original plastic substance of life. And then ask yourself, why this protoplasm has gathered itself together in this way? Why it has bothered to dress itself up in our hemisphere, put clothes on it, why does it protect itself? And we find this protoplasm is full of purpose. And we find if we trace it back to its beginnings, an egg inside another piece of protoplasm called mama, this egg somehow mysteriously took a piece of protoplasm, quite small, barely visible to the naked eye, and proceeded to develop itself, to organize itself, to divide itself internally, and every subdivision that it makes is functional, purpose-fulfilling. So we have to say this protoplasm is shot through and through with purpose and therefore with intelligence. We have to say the protoplasm of our body is a substance giving concrete evidence of intelligent working energies. Now, we observe another thing. If this protoplasm had not got a bony structure inside it, would it not be using energy more to sit up than it does now that it has a spine? Tell me, if you've got a spine in you, is it easier to sit up or harder? Easier. So you have to say that the bones in the body fulfill a special function. They have been posited inside the protoplasm by the protoplasmic intelligence, which is all one with the solar intelligent power, which is all one with the universal intelligent power, which religionists call God, and philosophers might call first cause. 
And we have to say that the bones have been posited inside that protoplasm merely for economic reasons. If I've got a bone in my arm and I turn my hand up like that, now my elbow won't bend backwards, so I don't tire in that part of my arm in holding it up as much as I would if I held it like that, where gravity's pulling it down. You do that with your arm, put an arm out, bang somebody under the nose next to you, turn your palm up and feel that your elbow joint is carrying the weight of that arm. Then turn it over the other way and feel that dangle. Feel how you expend energy to hold it up that way. Aren't you saving energy when you hold your palm up? Yes? So think about the bones in your body simply as economic methods of maintaining postures which would require greater energy expenditure if you hadn't made those bones. And think that the power that originally was in the universe that made the solar system, that cooled itself in this zone and made an earth, that on this zone organized plants, animals and men, this energy is still with us, working in us now and is intelligent. So that we are not in any way separated from the power of the universe that created the star system, the solar system, the planetary system, organic life on earth, and thus we are still in contact with that power. And that power is working intelligently in us. And then look at your nervous system. Those of you who have studied any nervous physiology have probably been taught that the nerves are means whereby you communicate, send messages from the brain to parts of the body. Is that right, Dr. Clover? So, is that right, Dr. Wilson? Now, in fact, it isn't so. <coughs> Something quite different. Before you had a nervous system, your protoplasm was able to send messages all over itself, wasn't it? You know that because an amoeba can do it, can't it? Has it got a nervous system, Dr. Clover? Not defined as such. That's very careful. <laughs> she's a little bit canny. Perhaps ten years ago she might have said, certainly it has not. And she's a bit wary now. Not defined as such. It doesn't show under the microscope, does it? No. Not the ordinary sort. <laughs> and yet this amoeba, which is only a monocell, spreading itself out in search of food and delights, carries messages all over itself throughout its protoplasm. And this same protoplasm has laid down the nervous system. Why has it done it? Answer, Dr. Clover, why has it done it? Economy, yes. As a matter of fact, once you've laid down a nerve track, you can insert a little bit of energy at the top end, and it will go down without bothering and wiggle your finger. It's an economic method of separating out functions. It is not actually a method of communication at all. It's a method of non-communication to the other parts that you don't wish to communicate with. Because all the nerve lines are insulated. So that energy inserted at the top end does not leak out on the way down until it comes to its particular turn. Is that right? Is there a doctor in the house? Trevor. 
Nie no, chyba my my jesteśmy zielni. Isn't there a blind insulated? Has a sheath. What's the function of that sheath? Along the nerve. So it doesn't leak out sideways. And this insulation was laid down by the intelligence that generated this protoplasm. So we have to say that just as the bones are an economic method of saving energy, so the nervous system is an economic way of saving energy. More specifically, remember you could use them specifically before you had the nervous system. All it's done is enable you to lay habit patterns so that you don't need to attend to them anymore. When you see a little baby trying to walk, it uses a lot of muscles that it doesn't need in order to walk, including pulling its tongue out, rolling its eyes, and so on, grabbing it there. It progressively eliminates those that do not conduce to walking, and it leaves the ones that conduce to walking connected up. So the moment the idea, I will walk, comes in, immediately there is a programmed direction of nervous impulsation and walking occurs. So the actual separation out of the functions is already inherent in the protoplasm made by that intelligent power. Now that being so, we're facing a peculiar thing and that is that the field of energy because when we're talking about living substances protoplasm we know they're held together by biomagnetic fields that field of energy must be already structured. We can't lay down the, these bones except within a pattern. We can't lay down this nervous system except within a pattern. Think of those eggs lying comfortably in mother, waiting to be born. You're an empirical scientist, you steal one in the night. Put it under the microscope, peer down it, what do you find? You don't find any visible bones on nervous system. And yet, if you treat it very carefully and incubate it, feed it, it will grow them. Now, where is the pattern of the human being when physically we cannot see it in the physical body of that protoplasmic egg? Where is it? It must be in the field. So the field itself must be structured. So that when we're talking about this solar power, this universal power, we're not talking about ploppy energy meandering about. We are talking about a power which is infinitely structured. It's got its own structure which can be the plan on which later it lays down a nervous system. Yeah? So we have to say that the field of the infinite power is infinitely structured. When we say infinitely structured, we mean that it contains every conceivable form, whatever you can imagine, no matter how funny it is, whether it's centaurs or millipedes, elephants, butterflies, whatever it is, that infinite field of power already has within it 
the structure of that being. Now, yoga philosophy is a philosophy telling you a procedure and a theoretical background to enable you to become aware of this structure and to do so by means of your body. You know, there's a nice little expression, yoga, bhoga. Yoga means conjoining with your source, yoking to the absolute power, and bhoga means enjoy it. It actually means, as you become aware that your body is nothing but embodied intelligence, embodied structure, embodied function, as you become aware of it, instead of thinking of it as an alien thing, something that somehow you fell into, you begin to see that this body is intelligent, structural, purposeful power, self-precipitated, concreted as a body. You then begin to see what was meant by many mystics, from Blake was one, Jacob Burma another, Shakespeare another, to say that this body is spirit. That the dualism made by certain religionists of spirit and matter is false. It is non-dual. Your body is spirit because it is structured, because it is functional. Think very carefully about that, because a lot of religion had a function in the ancient world of making people behave who could not understand at their then level the fact that body was spirit. Imagine people who thought that their body was a pleasure mechanism that they could use and bind themselves into the body because of the pleasures. And they couldn't understand that this pleasure itself was a device of spirit to ensure attendance to the body. And they became so locked in the pleasure cycles of the body that they couldn't turn round and look at the source power. You see that? Because sometimes you have to account for strange statements made by religious leaders in the ancient world which are quite untrue in taking at their external significance. Namely, the idea that there is a spirit world and the idea that there is a material world and the idea that these two worlds are at war with each other. Where St. Paul says the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And he sees a war in the members. And he postulates this. Why? Because of identification. How many of you know the story of the god Indra getting into the body of a pig? Do we all know it? Well, if there's only one who doesn't know it, then we have to tell the story. There was a great god named Indra, very famous amongst the gods, and he was meandering about one day and he saw a pig. And he thought, what a wonderfully powerful animal. So full of vitality. Fact. And he descended into it to see what it was like. And he found it felt marvellous, dashing about with tusks, tearing up the trees, having a fine time. And he became so delighted with this pig existence, the idea that he was Indra, the great god, began to fade. 
and he met a lady pig and then he paid it even more and then he got little piglets and he paid it more and he lost his divine vocabulary and all he could do was grunt meanwhile the divine messenger was skating about and in heaven there had been an alarm and this divine messenger said well actually he's in the pig's body and he's forgotten he's a god so all the gods went down and began to talk to him saying Lord Indra come out of that pig's body you've been in there long enough heaven is falling apart the administration's really going to pieces come back and he replied so they thought this is ridiculous the fellow's identified now identification is the key to all misery come thought and by what you may fall you may rise if you identify with an object you go under the law governing that object but if you identify with free spirit then you go under the law of free spirit but it's either or you identify with the form or you identify with intelligence anyhow Indra could only grunt so they killed all his little piglets whereupon he snorted and grunted and got very annoyed but he still remained piggy so then they killed the wife so he snorted more and started looking for another wife he's apparently incurable so they killed him they ripped open the body of the pig and they dragged him out and then he saw that he was Indra, the great god and he apologized for his rudery that's another god Rudra and promised not to identify with pigs anymore and they went back to heaven and the administration <coughs> was put in order and that story is telling you something it's telling you that intelligence can so concentrate on a purpose that it can lock itself in that purpose completely and that when it does so effectively it functionally cuts itself off you can't cut itself off substantially from its origin because total original reality is a continuum and a continuum has no parts and what has no parts cannot be cut but you can cut yourself off by identification with function so if women think that they are mothers of children and that they are dependent on men their thought that they are so will functionalize them so that they behave as if a woman said to me the other day with a sad face I've been thinking about the lot of women in the world and I have realized that to be born a woman is to be enslaved to men to think when you wake in the morning what shall I make for his breakfast not much, what shall I make for my breakfast his breakfast what socks shall I lay out what shirt colour shall I choose very good, a good insight the identification he had suddenly realised the consciousness in him suddenly realised that he was not merely a layer out of socks and an overboiler of water and things she was a genuine intelligence in a body able to choose having said that of course she laid out a shirt but that was no longer mere blind identification that was intelligent recognition of interfunction that's in case there's any rebellious spirits about down there, John. 
In the body are evidences. Now let's look at the body again. I think I'll use the gong now. Is that all right, John? Yeah. Well, I'm going to say this gong can represent an egg. The kind of egg that Joan, the owner of the gong, once carried and delivered, and that's now grown itself a headpiece, a couple of arms, and a couple of legs. We were all such. We were all once upon a time more or less gong shaped. The word gong is interesting because it's O-N in the middle and that means serpent with tail in mouth. It means a self-stimulating energy field. O-N, on. An means a running serpent. On means serpent with tail in mouth. Now, when you get hold of one of those on beings, as in Babylon, <coughs> on Heliopolis and so on, if you get hold of one of those and encase it in matter, that's hard G, it is a gong. So imagine it is an on, that is, a certain amount of energy rotating within itself, and this energy, if we tap it in the centre here, gives forth a certain sound. How many genuine well-trained musicians are there in the audience here? How many know all about harmonics? Well, let's keep it for the babies. If I tap this, does it vibrate down here as well? I can feel it with my finger, look. I hit it on one point and all points vibrate. Is that right, Mr. Violinist? Yes. If we touch a continuum in any part, we touch all its parts. It's very important, the gong. Now, imagine you are an egg and you have become grossly embodied but you are not cut off from the infinite power that precipitated the egg. So this power vibration is still imparting itself to the egg, isn't it? So I, after my humbleness of spirit, will now represent the infinite eternal power and I'll give it a little tap. That's to show that outside the gong there is some power that strikes it. And when I tap the gong, the gong speaks. Now, here is a problem for the free will merchants. Could the gong keep quiet? The answer is yes, if it were reflexively self-conscious. But in fact, the gong likes singing. That's the whole key to gong work. Just remember that, it's a big rule. When you stimulate someone, if they reply, it's because they were waiting for the stimulus. All you married men know that it's possible for a wife to shut down, not to speak, although they're quite capable of it. You give them a stimulus, maybe on the periphery. Accidentally, you turn over in bed and stick your knee in the middle of her spine, and a certain sound comes out. <laughs> matter of fact, this has caused some husbands to lie horizontally for the rest of their lives. <laughs> but 
but those are only the timid ones. Others recover after a few hours. Some even retaliate immediately. Whatever we can assert of any part of a continuum, we can assert of every zone of the continuum. So whatever we can assert of this gong, we can assert of our own being. We have asserted that because we are immediately aware of our purpose, no amount of argument by an external scientist can get us off the fact that we feel immediately our freedom to say, oh, don't talk rubbish, go away, or I agree with you, quite, now can I have my dinner? We can do any one of an infinity of responses. We know this, it is immediate, that is non-mediated in us. We also know that this continuum of power is infinitely intelligent. And yet mysteriously here it is being a gong. And here it is being a human being. And so on. Just think all the energy there being human beings. And some energy being carpet, some is being staged, some is being gong. Now, we said if you define any part of it adequately, you will define all of it. So let's define this gong a little more. Is this gong just something to take to pieces and saw it out to see what it's made of? Or should we examine it functionally? If we want to understand it. We'll understand it better functionally, won't we? So right, now we'll test it for function. If I tap it in the middle, a certain sound comes out. And we said, Two ways of thinking. You can look at it from outside and think you're clever to find something in it. You can look at it from inside and be surprised that it's already in it. So if this thing makes a noise when I tap it, isn't it because some intelligence designed the gong to make that noise? Now some people will say, oh yes, well, of course we as human beings we designed the gong deliberately to please our intelligence. And then, foolishly, but nobody designed me. I just evolved blindly in the universal matter. But this is illogical. If this gong has been designed by human intelligence, and the human intelligence in its whole structure has been designed by the power that made it, then the same intelligence that designed the gong designed the human being. And the function of the gong to the human being and of the human being to the gong are reciprocal. So now we have a triangle. Up here is the point of entrance of the infinite power. Down here is a body called human. There is a body called gong. If this body of human now goes like this and the gong sings back, it is only at the will of the absolute that these two things occur. The gong responds because it has been built to respond, and I respond to the gong's capacity to respond because I've been built to respond. And I'm also built to create a stimulus so that it will respond so that I can discuss the response of the gong and myself within the field of intelligent power. Now, you see that the middle of the gong has a round part, and there are two funny signs there, one above and one below. Well, we're going to say, let this centre of the gong 
represent the middle of your chest and let this one represent your tummy and that one your head when we say let them do it it means we're going to let them do it we're not going to stop them we have to align them to represent that why are we doing that? we're doing it inside our intelligence and we're doing it for our convenience in order to discuss certain things now if I tap myself on the chest I feel that I am tapped if I hit myself on the chest a bit harder I feel something mildly called pain if I were to hit myself very much harder I would probably tend in the cells to reactivate and say don't be a fool get out and walk out of striking distance if the energy in my chest reaches a certain level and overflows through excessive energy input it will drop into my tummy and from there go into my thighs and I will get that and go away so we'll start stimulus in the feeling centre of the heart We'll hit it a bit harder and start spreading through the being. Uh, damp at the moment. Imagine it goes down and we'll call this the motor center that makes you run about like a motor car. Goes into your legs. If I then run into a wall in my panic getting away from this blow, I beat up against the wall and the energy that is generated by the impact rushes up the gong and goes into the head. So, center, down, up is the order. First we feel, we are a field of sentient power, then under excessive stimulation, excessive meaning that which is so great that we cannot comfortably assimilate it, the energy first runs down into the motor center to get away from the excessive energy input, then if we run blindly and strike a wall in our running then the energy bounces back and goes into the head and becomes thought and observe that in the human being the baby is feeling before it has organized its motor centers that egg in the mother before it has grown those legs and arms is already feeling, it is sentient and then it begins to grow as the energy input from the food from the mother comes in and there becomes more and more available energy the energy begins to organize the motor center and then later on when it's been born for some time it will organize the thinking center the feeling center is organized first then the motor center then the thinking center first we feel then we move then we think I knew a man once and he was in a mental hospital and periodically he was hallucinated but only when he began to run he had a peculiar engram pattern such that when he began to run he immediately hallucinated and he saw open green fields in front of him and he ran and this was in a North Manchester mental hospital and he ran so fast that he crashed into a wall and knocked himself out now he represented that perfectly I feel then I move I crash into the wall and I think usually I had somebody with him so that he didn't break into a run but he illustrated perfectly this order feeling then starting to move accelerating trigger off 
hallucinate, crash, thought. Now we're going to say something from Buddhist psychology, and that is that your mind, your thinking part of yourself, in your head, is an organ of fear. It has been produced by crashing into obstacles. There are five main kinds of obstacles. Physical bodies, like walls and things. Emotional walls, that means emotional energy from other people refusing your emotional advance. Mental energy presenting you with ideas that disagree with yours. Governing concepts, worldviews that totally disagree with yours. And initiative that totally disagrees with yours. That's five ways of being thrown back on yourself and made to think. Now, we are looking at the wisdom in the body, whether it's the body of a gong or the body of this human being. Now, you know what the Doppler effect is, don't you? When a car or a train is rushing towards you, the pitch of the note, the sound of that engine, alters. When it's rushing away from you, it alters again. In the one case it rises, in the other case it falls. It's to do with the compression of the waves in the one case and the dragging out of the waves in the other case. Supposing I swing this gong like this, and as it's swinging, it's coming towards you and going away from you, and I'll just give it a little tap. Can you hear the alteration of pitch? I swing it a lot more. Did you feel a compression on your ears as it came towards you? Could you feel that? Or weren't you watching? Feel in your ears and see if you can't feel that the waves coming at you compress as the, thing, the gong swings toward you and this compression reduces as it swings away. practice can feel things like that quite easily. You feel a sort of threat as it swings towards you and this reduces as it swings away from you. Yes, something it says wah. Well, it's definitely giving you a different sound because it's altering the pitch, isn't it? Now, as this is suspended here at the top, the swing at the bottom is greater, isn't it? So the Doppler effect is greater at the bottom there. Can you hear that vowel shift? Up here at the top, the swing is much less, isn't it? Now, the swing, the response to a stimulus is greater down here, yes, in the 
appetite part than it is in the head. Why? Because the human being, unlike the animal, is suspended like this gong on a concept. We have a concept that we are human, don't we? And doesn't this concept inhibit us? Aren't we really suspended like this gong? Tightened up here, loose here, and don't we wear belts and bikinis and things to control ourselves in the lower regions because of the tendency to swing? I mean, there's more hip swinging than head swinging. Suppose we get a volunteer, who can walk? What lady could walk down there to prove the point? and keep her hips absolutely still and sway her head. <laughs> Is it a volunteer now? I'm a volunteer. Okay. I knew it was going to be a beauty. Thank you very much. You're a very cooperative girl. I want you to keep your hips absolutely dead level. Remember they're ruled by Libra. I want them absolutely parallel. I want your head to loll from side to side as if it was born in Africa. Mm -hmm. yeah? Will you walk now, please? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 Always take the lady's glasses off before anything basic. <laughs> right? Get it going. <laughs> Can't do it. It's against nature, dear. It's against nature. You've been doing it the other way for so many thousands of years. You're in quite a habit, really. Hmm. Yes, in good year school, he would deliberately try to make people do that. To do something that they can't do to teach them something about their organism. It's weird, isn't it? It's a very weird feeling, actually. Very weird, yeah. Another exercise is to be a woman and deliberately set out to tell the objective truth about something. You have exactly the same difficulty. Like a man has tremendous difficulty in trying to feel what his wife means as opposed to what she's verbally presenting. So here we are, the great amount of swing is down here, and that means that we are more urgeful in the lower part of the body, and in the head we are tightened up, we are more inhibited. So these two apparently quite different things really are being governed by a very similar law. So the one that is declared to be inorganic, and the other is declared to be organic, but they're both working, and organic means working. They're working in the same way. But this body is more fluffy about it than this body. But the same law is operative in both. So we are saying the intelligence in the universe that has produced the solar system, the planetary system, organic life on Earth, and mineral forms on Earth, and has produced a form called man, which is highly functional, and he has produced things like gongs, and all of these are purposefully related together so intimately 
that if you define the function of any one of them fully, then you define the others. You couldn't define an earthworm without defining the blackbird that pulls it out of the ground. We call this ecology today, don't we? Cosmic ecology. All the forms are linked together. In Japanese Zen, it is Jijimuge, the absolute reciprocal interpenetration of all beings. So now, I'll say, let us look a bit closer. We have in our legs spokes of two wheels, and the spokes are jointed so that we can ride over rough ground. If we had just ordinary rigid type wheels, of a certain diameter, we could ride over certain ground all right, but we couldn't ride over very variable ground, could we? We've actually taken what could have been wheels, we have abstracted the levers, the spokes, articulated them in a certain way, and made our legs so that we can actually go over very, very uneven ground. And the same with our arms. And we have inbuilt the bones into them, and the nerve lines into them, so that we can establish habitual patterns of response so that we don't need to think about what we're doing when we're walking along or doing an ordinary routine job. For every function that we can establish a habit pattern, we release our consciousness to attend to something else more important. Now let us think about this very carefully. Supposing I say, I start with feeling, and then I ask Mark a question, Mark Hunter, if I want to be a unity of intent, of purpose, of intelligence, and if I know that I start as a feeling being, is it very sensible for me to abandon my feeling and pursue unity without it? No. So if I actually start from feeling, and my thinking is nothing but the result of my feeling in particular situations, then it is very wrong of me, very illogical, to try to resolve a problem merely by thinking without feeling. Right? So, I must learn to stimulate my own feeling. Now, how do I do this if I'm a human being? A human being is a peculiar being in that he has evolved in himself an instrument whereby he's able to remind himself about things in a way that animals cannot do. And that instrument is vocabulary. Let's say you have a system of words. When you recite those words, they remind you of certain basic functions. We talked about yoga and bhoga. And Bahoga is enjoyment. And yoga is conjunction with the infinite power from which we are derived. So if we put them both together, it says, enjoy your function. Now to enjoy it, you must feel it, mustn't you? If you don't feel it, if you merely think it, if you don't feel it, you don't enjoy it. So if you are going to do both, if you're going to destroy the false dualism that the spirit is the enemy of the body, you will have to begin to enjoy your function. Whatever it is. If it's worth doing, enjoy it. 
If it isn't worth doing, don't do it. And the question of whether a thing is worth doing depends on your level of development. Because what is worth doing for an earthworm isn't quite the same thing for an eagle or for a dormouse and an elephant and so on. They're all different functions. They're travelling at different rates. They have different age lengths, different functional patterns and so on. But in all cases, all these living beings are sentient, as they feel. So in the Bhagavad Gita you have a great sentence to remind you, worship is continual remembrance. Now when you hear a phrase like that, worship is continual remembrance, make a note of it, and tell yourself that you are going to start remembering those things that are worth remembering. What does worship mean? It means worth shape. Worship is the shape of worth, value, importances. Make a hierarchy of importances and remember that hierarchy. What is the first thing to be remembered? The first thing with which you started, sentience. Firstly, you say, I'm feeling being. Before anything else, I feel. That's going a little further back than Descartes. He thought that because he thought, he existed. If he'd have gone a bit further and felt that he felt that he existed, he would have been better off. Because then he would not have identified with intellectual propositions, but he would have identified with feeling, and feeling having no edges, he would have gone back into the infinite. Because the peculiar thing about feeling is, although it has a centre, it has no edges. Think of this, when I tap the centre of this gong, the vibrations spread out around the gong, and they go to the periphery there, but you can hear them over there, can't you? So the vibration must have hit the air particles here, and travelled along the air and hit you in the eardrums and so on. So, although it started in the centre, it goes to infinity, doesn't it? Think of that fact. Supposing three days later you happen to be talking to somebody about this gong being struck in a certain way. Could you have been talking about it in that way if the gong had not been struck? No. In other words, the striking of that gong actually conditions not only the people in this room now, here, but in every subsequent now here in which those persons may find themselves. So if six years later you remember that gong, that gong is remembering you. Remember means make again a member of the whole power. Worship is continual remembrance. What are you to remember? You are to remember that you are sentient power with no edges. You are infinite sentient power. That's rule one. Remember that. You are infinite sentient power. From that derives rule two, ahimsa, absolute harmlessness to all beings. Because if you are sentient, if the continuum is sentient, on what ground can you inflict damage, pain, destruction, on another part of the same continuum which actually represents your centre of sentience? It would be quite illogical for you to harm zones of that being which is actually yourself. 
The infinite sentient power is focused on your body and if you think that you are separate from another being like you might think you are separate from that gong you are deceived. You are not separate from the gong because if you were, when I struck it, you wouldn't hear it. Your cells wouldn't vibrate with it. In the same way that when that gong is struck sound comes to you in the same way that the vibrations of that gong any uh, physicist in the house, electro specialists, electronic engineers and so on is it not true that when this vibrates there is compression of the molecules, of the atoms is it not true there's jumping of orbits of the electron is it not true there's a generation of electromagnetic waves of course it is therefore is it not true that not only do you receive a message from the gong with your ear but you receive a message from the gong in your bodies suppose you all put your fingers in your ears and see what happens try and make yourself as deaf as possible I want you to see if any other part of your body other than your ears gets some kind of vibratory Was the experience totally unknown to you? Did you get it through the ears or did you find you got it from someone else as well? <coughs> Yesterday, when a couple of people were sitting on the stage with me here, and I hit the gong a certain number of times in a certain position, this stage began to vibrate quite markedly. Is that right, John? Did you have a witness? It wasn't me. No. So there was actual haptic experience from the vibration of the gong. But that same thing actually stimulates your sense of smell, your sense of sight. It stimulates the whole sensorium. And if your identification with a particular organ over a number of years has apparently cut you off, from the other senses, so that you haven't got a synesthetic experience, but you're mainly focused on one particular sense. That's only the way you have focused. It isn't the way you are necessarily conditioned. You can actually extend your sensitivity. So in the same way that when we strike the gong, you listen and you also feel physical vibrations. And if you are very sensitive, you would also get a sense of smell in certain nerves inside here and the sense of taste in the taste bud in your mouth so in the same way whenever you look at something when the light strikes an object and bounces off that object onto you you don't only see it at a certain level of your awareness your other senses also reverberate to it so that you actually become aware of certain information that may be relatively vague but it is definitely there and the totality of all these different incoming stimuli we call the atmosphere of a place or the general temperament of a human being there we are worship is continually remembered 
we start with feeling if we remind ourselves first we feel and only if we pile feeling energy in beyond a certain level will that feeling energy go down into the motor center and when that feeling energy is piled in so that it overflows we change its name and we call it emotion emotion, outmotion it's gone out from the feeling center flowed out and it is now moving towards the motor center it is moving you so there's a peculiar thing in the pursuit of real self-control first you have to recognize that you feel and then you have to recognize that you can reinforce your feelings by feedback and build them up you can say this man has insulted me and said half a dozen times and work yourself up into an emotionally overcharged condition the energy will run down into the motor centers and you'll rush up and kick him or do something first feel overflow his emotion into the motor centers action and that emotion is mediating between the feeling assessment and the motor response itself so we've got a mediator there's one there we've got a tummy there and between it we've got a little mediator they actually give us three different notes with a bit of practice with closed eyes we can actually hear which part of the gong is being struck first you feel then you reinforce the feelings pile them up you can tell yourself funny stories how many years have I lived with this idiot that I should put up with this any longer and so on this is feedback and you can keep feeding back the energy into your being until finally it overflows, you are now emotional he rushes into the motor centre you hit him with the rice pudding and go off to see your mother-in-law out of sheer revenge drink all her favourite banana wine or something feel overcharged feeling emotion motor centre when the motor centre drives you to hit against the wall it bounces back into the head and in bouncing back up to the head it passes through another mediating centre your larynx there that's a very important thing a mediating centre between feeling and thinking the larynx and that larynx is very very concerned with your speech isn't it you call it a voice box and it means that when the thinking energy having bounced up to the top of your head comes back into the body it comes back charged with thought processes which are factually word processes it verbalizes and we started with one gong and we've now got five centers haven't we quite logically and in the same way we have a feeling center we pack the energy into it, it overflows, it goes down into the tummy we crash into the wall, it bounces into the head the head feeds back the information, don't do that again and in the process evolves the larynx so we examine that larynx, we find a very marvellous instrument fantastically designed and we have to think to ourselves this box is designed for controlling air in such a way that we can determine how many puffs per second come out to determine the pitch of a screen and we have it coordinated 
with a tongue that can wiggle up and down and articulate the sounds. And all this function is within the being, waiting to be discovered and put there by purposeful intelligence. So then we have five things to remember. First we feel, then by feedback we can recite our feelings to ourselves. I am injured, I am injured, I am injured. This shouldn't happen to a dog, and it's happened to me, how terrible. And you pile it up, it overflows, that's emotion. Because in the motor centers you rush along and kick your toe against the end of the staircase, and now you've got trouble. Big fat toe. You have to think what to do about it. When you're thinking, you're actually using words. You invent words, you know, to control thought, symbolically. And you send these down through the larynx, and you shout out your instructions back into the feeling center, and off you go again. So you have this peculiar process, feeling, overflow emotion, motor response, bang into the head, thinking, articulation, back into the feeling center. Worship is continual remembrance. If you were to take all the words out of your vocabulary and begin to define them, the first thing you would observe is that you cannot define any single word you've got without using other words. And this shows you the reciprocal relation of thought. You cannot define a word like some dictionaries do, like a cabbage, sea uh, cabbage, from the old English cabbage or something, and refer to cabbage. So you look up cabbage again, same place, same page, and it says see cabbage. It's funny that, there are dictionaries like that. Have you got one of those? They're rather cheap, those dictionaries. They're called handy pocket dictionaries. They tell you nothing. But there are some other dictionaries that tell you the origins of words, some, uh, dictionaries are not too bad for one volume, like Wilde's Universal English Dictionary, which we generally recommend for beginners. <coughs> and then, of course, you have rather fuller dictionaries with many volumes, which actually give you the date of the introduction of a word, who used it, and what it then represented. But, when you try to define a word, you are forced to define some other word. You use other words to define this one, and then you have to define the other words. And you can't define a word as only one word, because to define a word you have to use a sentence. And every sentence has a subject and a predicate. So you've already got at least two. And then you have to define those, and immediately you're off on a tremendous spreading out of words. Now as each word represents an idea in your mind, it follows, but if you can't define a word except in terms of some other words, you can't define an idea except in terms of some other ideas. But as every idea you have has been evolved in a concrete living situation, you haven't got a single idea in your vocabulary, a single word, that is not emotively charged in some degree. So that when you try to define a word, define an idea, you're forced also to define an emotional pattern. But every emotional pattern tends to go into the motor center and produce action. 
so that any single word, when you start to define it, will lead you through overflow into emotion, into motor activity. Any word will liberate energy and move you. And then you will be in trouble and you will think again. Now, because of this fact about words and ideas, because a word is only an orderly power, and an idea is only a form in a field of sentence, if you are to balance yourself dynamically in a living way, as all the words presuppose each other, the only way you can liberate yourself from any given emotive tendency that would carry you into action is that the moment you hear that word, you are immediately to define its opposite with the same amount of energy. So if a man says forward chaps, you shout backwards, hand chaps. If you do this internally, you stabilize your being. If you do not do it, you cannot stabilize your being. It's rather interesting. Either or, either you balance your ideas, equals, forms with emotional charges, or you will go into activity on an unbalance. Remember, there is no balance in the universe other than the balance of opposing forces. There's not a balance of no forces, and there is no static balance. If you're painting a picture and you talk about balance, you have to put a form here, a form here, a form here, and a form here, and so on. There's a law of diagonal balance that you would use. If you don't use energies in opposition, you are not balanced. That means you cannot balance yourself unless you deliberately set up the contrary idea of the one that's just hit you. So if somebody says severity, you must say mercy to yourself. And if somebody says mercy, you must say severity. Otherwise you'll fall into mercy. It is essential to balance, quite consciously. Worship is continual remembrance. Worship is worth shape, the shape of value. And your value ultimately is determined by the degree of intelligent self-control you've got. So there we have now worship is continual remembrance from which we remember that we are a feeling being a zone in an infinite sentient field and that because it is sentient it feels because it is infinite it means we are not separate from each other and because we are not separate rule two ahimsa harmlessness comes out of it. Then we go on to our five. We feel, we emote, we motorize or activate, we crash into obstacles, we think, we verbalize, back to feel. And to be aware of that fact and watch the cycle. Whatever somebody is saying to you, Immediately think, what's the opposite of that? And say it to yourself and recognize all opposites presuppose each other. All opposite ideas are equally valid. The good, the bad, the high, the low, the near, the far are all equally valid and your balance of being depends upon the realization of this opposition. Immediately the stimulus comes. 
You feed in the contrary stimulus, and in that fact, you are balanced. Now, unless you are balanced, you are not free. If you balance, you know that because of the word Libra. Balance, a pair of scales. If you have exactly equal weights in the scales, you can choose to ignore both, or you can operate both, or you can operate either. But if you are not balanced, your energies are unbalanced, and they overflow, the emotion is going in the motor center and making you behave in a certain way. So your first duty in the pursuit of freedom is to remember, to remember. Worship is continual remembrance. Second, ahimsa. And then, thirdly, feel, emote, motor, crash, think. Verbalize back to center of feeling. If you don't verbalize what's happened, you will not be able to respond accurately to the next stimulus. Feel, emote, motorize, crash, think. Verbalize, state what has happened, back to feeling center, reevaluate. Do those five and you will come into balance. It requires practice and first of all, practice in remembering. <coughs> Get a postcard, write on it, worship is continual remembrance. Or for economy's sake, you can write the initial letters of that. What would you have then? Wicca. Do you know what Wicca is? It's the old name for the, an Anglo-Saxon parliament. It means quick differentiation. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications for future episodes.